Hello and welcome to Power Through Healing, the podcast created to support your inner evolution. I'm your host, Amanda Thomas, and today I'm going to share with you a beautiful conversation, a heartwarming and heart-wrenching conversation that I had with Stephanie Suzette Caldwell. She is this amazing speaker and writer. She promotes mental health and wellness. She speaks about mental illness so thoroughly because she has been through it. She has dealt with the depression, the anxiety, the suicidal tendencies, and her own suicide attempt that she is very candid in sharing. So I do want to make sure that you understand there's a trigger warning in this episode where we dive deep into that healing experience, that journey. But first we have to get into the darkness, the darkness of what mental illness can bring to your life. So make sure that you're in the right place to listen to this. If you're not quite there yet, that is perfectly fine. But all I want you to do is take the time and the actions that are required for you to feel better and to get back to a place of knowing that you are absolutely meant to be here. There is a purpose and a power that is higher than you that wants you to be here. If I can do anything at all to support you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Otherwise, I'm ready to dive right into this conversation. Stephanie, however you feel comfortable just telling us a little bit about yourself and your past. Yeah, so I um, originally am from Alabama, very small town, grew up with a single mom. She started having some mental health issues in her 20s. Previous to her, our, our family didn't really believe in mental illnesses, and that's really hard to say because it's it's hard to believe they're are people like that. I, I think they're a little more open now, but definitely when I was growing up, my mom was already a young mom. They just, they just didn't think mental illness was real. And so just to kind of give you that context of, um, you know, um, my mom reaching out for help, which she felt very isolated and alone. And she was very sick. A lot of my childhood, a, a lot of mental health issues. And so I, I think that definitely contributed. Um, I, I tried to be kind of the, the savior, the hero, and I, I always put other people first and their needs first and really ignored myself and what I needed. So I, I think that was a big contribution to it. But uh, so she was a single mom. Dad wasn't around. I'd had two other siblings. Around the age of 13 is when they started. At, we were in family therapy and they really started um, asking us about individual symptoms. Um, uh, my sister, she was very angry all the time and pretty openly depressed. Like it, I mean, she was pretty textbook, but me, I was someone that worried all the time. I worried about everything. My mom at one point worked an hour away and I was convinced that she was going to either have a car wreck on the way there or have a car wreck on the way home. And I mean, it was, it was just irrational worries, tons of anxiety. I couldn't sleep very well at night and I felt like I didn't need a lot of sleep. And, um, 
I was such a control freak because as you can imagine, a single mom, three kids, uh, we had a little bit of a chaotic household and things were very unstable financially. And um, so anything I could control, I really grabbed onto that. And so I, at the age of about 10 or 11, wrote down a morning schedule for myself in like five minute increments at six o'clock. I'm going to wake up at six Oh five. I'm going to get dressed at six ten. I'll be eating breakfast. I mean, you know, just, just very <laughs> unusual for that young of an age and that sort of a thing. So, so fast forward back to around 13 family therapy, they're asking us stuff. They asked me how I sleep and I'm like, you know, I can't sleep. And they're like, why can't you sleep? And I'm like, I just, I just keep thinking about things. I, I list out things. I think of the things I need to do and what I'm going to do tomorrow and all the things that need to get done. And, you know, just this long list of things. And, you know, I worry that I'm not doing good enough or I'm not, you know, making straight enough A's or <laughs> anything, you know? And so, yeah. um, it was, it was overwhelming. And, sure. uh, so they're like, we really think you should do individual therapy and maybe talk about medication, just consider it. <laughs> and my sister who is older than I am, she had already been put on medication an antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication. And, I didn't really like the way that she behaved. And I started associating the medicine with how she was behaving. Um, and really there was so much more to it, but I was so young, I, you know, and our family is very ill-equipped and mental health at this point. And so I was like, I, I don't want medicine. Please don't put me on medicine. And so, so they tried for about a year, just talk-based therapy and made some improvement with some of my irrational anxiety, the kind of over the top, but then they're like, you know, we really need to try some medication because then I started the symptoms of more depression. It wasn't just like really anxious and worked up, but I mean, you can only be sleep deprived for so long before you start having other symptoms and physical symptoms. And um, not to mention, I had a lot of acid reflux from worrying. So, so then they started me on some antidepressants and some things got cleared up. It was, it was a little bit better. Um, sometimes I would have nightmares. And so they would switch up my medication. That was always rough medication switches, um, because you'd have to wean off one and get on another one. And yeah. meanwhile, you just want the world to just stop for a minute and just, just let you get some footing, but you know, I'm in high school and it just keeps going and there's another test. And, you know, my teachers are completely oblivious and unaware because mm -hmm. I definitely don't speak out about it. I only speak to my therapist and my psychiatrist and, right. you know, none of my friends know, absolutely not a one of them. What was and the fear there? Like, what was the thought process there that you couldn't share yourself and your feelings? Well, first and foremost, it was hard for me to just share personal things at all, because in in my house, you know, 
my mom was always kind of, I guess, overshadowing her needs always overshadowed mine, whether Mm -hmm. that was intentional or not in my head, she always needed more and everybody always needed more, you know, my problems, uh, they'll be fine. We'll figure them out. Let's just, you know, not worry about them. So that was kind of the first and foremost thing that always thought everybody was more important than I was. And like, who Hmm. wants to listen to my story or, you know, what I'm going through. Yeah. I was like, that space is already full. Like where can I fit into there? Sure. Yeah. And then secondly, I didn't have a great vocabulary to talk about it. And again, in my family, it was very hush hush and just a lot of miss ill education about it. And so, you know, you were just making it up essentially. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to talk to people. I didn't want them to think I was making this up. Whose idea was it to bring your family to therapy though? So it was my mom's. She actually went to college and majored in psychology, it it turns out. So I think she got a lot of awareness. Now, because she had us young, unfortunately, this kind of came much later. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then she didn't start college until we were a little bit older. And so but a lot of this awareness, I think, came out of that. And she started, um, you know, immersing herself in the mental health field as well. And she ended up working in the mental health field. So with that, by the time we were 10, 11, 12, you know, that's when we started family therapy and was like, okay, something's something's off. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious what the intention was then. Like, what was that conversation? Like, we're going to therapy because. Well, mostly because we had a not healthy family dynamic. My sister was always very angry and almost to the point of being violent. She used to scratch people on the bus and draw blood. Um, And then my brother, he had actually been diagnosed with ADHD at a much younger age. It was very apparent. And so he had actually been on medicine for several years at this point, but he just was a little boy with ADHD. I mean, just always in trouble, always into everything, breaking things, taking them apart so he could see how they worked. And so, um, it was just a lot of stress. And so, yeah, Yeah. I'm just, the the only reason why I'm asking is my family was pretty dysfunctional as well. And unfortunately therapy was really frowned upon. It was like a, you know, if you go to therapy, that's admitting that there's a problem. So at least, you know, it got to the point where you could admit we have a few things we could work out and maybe seek some external help with. So I commend that. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I really think because of my mom's, uh, family, their, their lack of support in this, she saw because like my grandmother was an alcoholic and my grandfather was kind of a workaholic. And so it was a lot of dysfunction there. And so she saw what it was like to just sweep things under the rug, Mm -hmm. to just ignore it, to just pretend, you know, and so I, I think the pendulum swung in the right direction that she was like, okay, this is zero help. And this is not good. Okay. We need to go get lots of help. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. So perfect. So then continuing on, you know, you're in high school, high school already has plenty of emotions attached to it already. And then you're kind of dealing with this other overwhelming presence that is, you know, your own mental health that you don't even feel like you can speak about. So 
So where does it go from there? So it, it stays about the same. I'm still in talk therapy. It doesn't get better. doesn't get worse. And so sometimes that's a win. And so, but really after I had my, my first daughter, I, you know, had the depression had increased in intensity um, somewhat, but especially after I had her, there was a lot of postpartum depression and I, I was 18 at the time. So I was also a young mom and I was just so worried about what everybody would think. And so I didn't want to, cause I, I just already knew that people were judging me. And of course this is in my head. I'm sure it was in real life too, but it was mostly in my head, you know, and I just didn't want them to think, Oh no, you know, there's another young mom and she doesn't know what she's doing and not, uh, all the things. And so I, uh, when I really started to struggle, um, with, with this just really dark depression that I hadn't ever really experienced before, I was very quiet about it. Definitely isolated myself. That's actually one of the things I still tend to do. I can, I can tell when something's not right, when I start withdrawing, because that was like my first coping mechanism was isolation. And so I didn't want to talk about it with anybody. I was very ashamed, like, oh, I, you know, I shouldn't have gotten pregnant so young. I shouldn't have become a mom so young. You know, I just should all over myself. And um, I didn't really talk about it. My, um, I, I was breastfeeding at the time also. And so I couldn't be on certain medications and it, it was really tough, but I still saw a therapist. I was still seeing a psychiatrist. And so, but I felt like I was just doing the bare minimum. Like I wouldn't tell them the whole story because I still felt this, I guess, like a shame kind of thing, even though they were mental health professionals, it just was so ingrained in me that I still felt very reserved even during our appointments, I guess. And so, so again, it's, it's pretty okay. And, um, but then I have my second daughter and it was, it was a flip, a, a switch that flipped. Absolutely. Something happened and I just felt so different. I, it was not in a good way. It was, mm -hmm. it was something. And I started getting suicidal ideation. So before I would just feel like just this sad, just, just sad. And that, you know, everything was going wrong and nothing was going right. And just like kind of this tired, like worn out, weak and weary kind of thing. But then after my second daughter was born, I felt horrible just the muck and the mire and just, just horrible. And I, that's when the suicidal ideations came as well. And I, you know, thought that, you know, I just, I just need to kill myself. This, this is just, this is not for me. And there's not a whole lot of words that I can put to it. Cause it was more right. feelings of what I felt. And so I was checked into my first psychiatric hospital just for suicidal ideations. When did you check yourself in or how did that come about? So, yes. Yeah, so it was voluntary. I 
went to uh, my regular psychiatrist and um, they thought the next best plan of action would be to go to a mental health hospital for a more intensive, you know, inpatient type thing. And um, my daughter was four months old at the time. And my other daughter was about three and a half. And so that was really hard, but I, I couldn't take care of them. And so I knew that this is what was, or I felt like, I didn't know at the time, I felt like this is what was best sure. to do, even though it was incredibly hard. So my, so my husband helped me and we, we went together. We weren't married at the time. He's my now husband, but the father of my children. <laughs> and um, so he, he helped me. Um, he's, he's got kind of a sixth sense now because we've been together so long and he's been with me this whole time through my whole mental health struggle. Side note, we met when I was four and he was five. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so cute. Yeah. We grew up together. At one time we were next door neighbors and our moms wow. had worked together at one point. So, so he's really been he really the whole you. time. Yeah. <laughs> he knows you. Yeah. So he has this spidey sense, you know, he can tell when something has gone awry and Sure. So, so he helped me with that process of that, that check-in and it was, it was a really great experience. I will say, uh, because it was, it was very eye-opening. It was just a ton of awareness. I didn't realize I had boundary issues. I didn't really know what boundaries were mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. Right. I didn't know I had bad ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't know I had, I was lacking them. Yeah. We don't know until we learn. Right. And so exactly. yeah. I didn't know what I didn't know. And uh, boundaries was a big one. And you know, I had been going to therapy since, like I said, uh, you know, 12, 13 years old, but I really feel like we had just kind of talked about what was going on then and we never got to like core issues. And another thing that they taught me in the hospital is that maybe you don't have the right therapist. (laughs) And they said, you know, finding a good therapist is kind of like dating. Mm. It's really okay to be like, okay, you're not right for me. You know, I'm going to go be with somebody else. And I had never, so important important, and had no idea, was completely clueless that I could change my therapist. Like I thought I just had to like sit here and be okay with it because I'm just such a people pleaser and like, I don't want the therapist to be mad at me and I don't want to disappoint them, (laughs) but they're a professional. Like if they're Uh, getting their feelings hurt, they probably don't need to be a therapist, you know? I mean, if they're getting their feelings hurt by somebody wanting to... go be a client That's so crazy else. how deeply rooted that people pleasing can get though so yeah so deeply rooted and so so that was fabulous to hear and they just they just taught me a, a lot about self-awareness and um I so I was there for 10 days and it was a really eye-opening experience I left feeling so much more educated now unfortunately simultaneously They were also trying to up my antidepressant and I was um, starting to cycle worse and worse and worse because what we didn't know at the time, but quickly found out 
was um, I was no longer diagnosed with depression, anxiety, but had moved up in the world <laughs> into bipolar one disorder. Okay. And so the antidepressants can cause you to cycle more often. And so instead they pulled me off of those and put me on a mood stabilizer and an antipsychotic instead. And that made quite a difference. Um, I didn't feel like I was, because I was experiencing mania, but I, I didn't know that that's what it was. And I just felt like my thoughts were racing and I was just having highs and lows and going from one thing to another, all within a few seconds. And um, again, I wasn't open and honest about my symptoms and what I was going through. So that contributed to me not being treated properly. And so if I would have just been Mm. more honest, more open, just, just let it all out, you know, then I could have gotten treated a lot sooner and better treatment. Sure. I think that's such an important message for anyone that's listening is we tend to prolong our pain and suffering sometimes because we're just so scared to speak our truth and our body, our mind, our soul knows what we need. And it's like screaming at us. And it gets to that point where finally our body just shuts down completely for us to understand, wow, I guess I should have said something about this. And I know then you can finally see the light and you can understand, oh, okay, this is this is what I need to be doing. These are the resources that are available when I speak openly and authentically about what my needs are. Now I feel like because the the video that you're referencing, that was actually the first time that I had gone completely public on social media about suicide and my experience with it. And so now existing how I am right now. I just want to be an open book. And when people talk to me, I mean, it's just like, well, what do you want to know? And I just talk about it super open and honest because I have learned the incredibly hard way that it's just not good. It's not good for me. It's not good for other people. And and I say that because when I show, when I share my story openly and honestly, people can be like, oh my gosh, I am not the only person, you know? And so it, it's just, it's good for me. It's good for other people. So I'm, you know, it's a 180 turn. Totally. Sure. It's makes, it makes mental health relatable and mm-hmm. a safe subject to discuss. Yes. And that's why I commend you so much. And, you know, other people that I see doing it, it's because like your story was, you know, you were a young mother, you were an everyday, just person living her life. And at the time, I think you said you were a teacher and it's mm-hmm. just like, you were just an everyday person dealing with these dark thoughts and this overbearing presence of mental illness. And finally, you came to the realization of I'm not the only one. And so by you sharing your story today, you're opening that door for someone else, just like it was open for you, however many years ago was it is safe to talk about this. I'm not the only one someone else might be able to relate to this information. Absolutely. So the The next, over the next four years, I would go to the psychiatric hospital four more times for a total of five times in four years. Wow. And 
Um, each time was increasingly worse. The symptoms were more severe. The suicidal ideations became actual plans. And then that takes me to the very last one, the fifth one that I spoke about. So on February, we'll take it actually back one day, February 28th, 2016, I, I, was religiously taking the medicine. I was doing everything the doctor had said to do. At this point, I was more open and honest, probably still not 100%, but more than I had been in the past. I'd already had four voluntary psychiatric hospital admissions, and I was in my first year of teaching. And it was a pretty rough school. It was hard to deal with. Administration wanted you to just go to your classroom and shut your door, just take care of it yourself. We're, you know, we're too busy with, you know, bigger things, but anyway, and so it was, it's very tough, a lot of overcrowding. And so there, there was that contributing. My girls were getting older and I just couldn't get my mental health under control. I mean, you know, I was just doing all the things and I still felt just so over and I was still isolating. So I still wasn't using all the coping mechanisms. I don't want you to think that I was regularly taking the medicine. I was going to the therapist like once a week or every other week, seeing the psychiatrist, you know, so I was doing all those things, but in my everyday life, I, I wasn't setting my boundaries. Like I'd learned how to do. I wasn't, you know, doing or using my toolbox like I should have, I still felt like I, I wasn't equipped. I had the equipment, but using them, that's what I wasn't good at because I could tell you everything I learned in all the hospitals and all the therapy, and it was there, and I just couldn't use it for, for whatever reason. I just Looking back struggling. now, do you know why? I think... I think I just didn't feel like I was enough. Like I wasn't (laughs) strong enough. I, again, putting other people first, you know, I I don't need to use my tools if I am over here helping them and I can just pour my time and attention into them. And then I don't have to worry about my problems and they'll just disappear. (laughs) Sure. You just said the most important words. And I had a feeling that's what you would say is, you didn't think you were enough, right? You had all these tools literally at your fingertips, but you were too scared to pick them up because, you know, we just think, well, who am I to use them? Who am I to deserve to feel better? Sometimes Mm -hmm. even as crazy as that sounds, sometimes we have that feeling of who am I to deserve happiness, to deserve health and wellness. And it's crazy the things that get programmed into our mind. So at that time, you still weren't fully ready to break through to that aha moment of, oh yeah, I am. I am good enough. Yeah. I, I felt worthless, all, all the things. And, and, and when you're sick, it's just exacerbated. It's just so much worse because mm. normally on a good day, you know, I would probably feel kind of unworthy, not enough, but like it would be at bay. But when, when I would start to have these depression episodes, just utter depression episodes, it was just really bad. And it was no longer any sort of rational thinking. And so, you know, when I, when I went to my very first hospital stay, 
And I know this nurse was very well-meaning. She was. Um, it was one of the intake nurses and she was just asking, you know, about me and stuff like that. And at the time I was um, in college to become a teacher and I had two girls and she's like, oh, honey, you just, you have to get better for them. You, you know, you have to get better for them. You have to be there to take care of your girls. And like I said, I know she's very well-meaning, but that is probably the worst thing that she could have said to me Mm. (laughs) because then I just felt even more guilty that here I was sick, abandoning, you know, I'm not thinking straight, abandoning my children to go to the hospital and, you know, and I'm supposed to get better for them. Well, Mm -hmm. and again, you know, what if they die? Am I supposed to end my life? Because that's what I'm living for. So we can't get better for other people. We can't not. I learned that the hard way too, Mm because I tried. I people pleaser. Yeah. And that's where the shame comes in because it's like, if I can't even do it for my own children, then what the hell? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so nobody needs that shame. (laughs) Nobody needs that guilt. And, um, so don't, don't get better for other people, get better for yourself. And I think there's a little note there to be said too, as much as I've been that person too, where I'm like, well, just think of it this way, or why don't you look at it this way? But it's like, if you're not in the thick of it, if it's not your own personal experience, let's try not to give advice or any notes that we aren't really qualified to give. It's just about holding space for someone, right? Just letting Mm -hmm. them come to the conclusion on their own of why they should get better. And that's a, that's a process. And like you said, it's always well-meaning, but Mm -hmm. it's just an important note to kind of think about maybe pause before you speak when you're talking about these heavy subjects. Oh, absolutely. And just people being there. I mean, because people are like, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do, but like, just I mean, just like you said, just giving them that space, just physically being there, like just showing up. I mean, you don't actually even, even better make it awkward. So then they'll feel like talking because sometimes (laughs) if seriously, and in, I found myself doing it today, like in social situations, if other people are talking and filling the space, I'll be like, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to listen. And what they have to say is, you know important or sometimes I go into more important than what I need to say or something like that Mm -hmm. but then when there's these awkward quiet pauses I'm like okay well maybe you know maybe I'll talk some so like then I try to fill up the space a little and then one thing leads to another and then we're like in this deep conversation and so just go and listen to people make awkward silence thank you for saying that that's just a an aha for me too, where I had to learn that. And you have to be silent. You have to give them time to, to speak. And it is awkward. (laughs) I think that's the best word for it is it's so awkward. And I, it's like holding base and not having to come up with a solution for someone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all we want is for anyone in our life that we love. We want them to just be there for us. And it makes me feel better to know that you're making an effort to just at least try and understand that's empathy, right? That's just Mm -hmm. saying, I, I see that you're going through something. I don't have an answer for you and I don't need to come up with one. I'm just giving you the support and the love to try and get there, to, to get that answer for yourself. 
Right. Right. And I just wish I had more people around me, you know, and again, I I would self-isolate. So I don't sit here and point Mm -hmm. my finger or blame anybody, but just like people that have loved ones, friends, family members in their life that is going through something like this. That's what I want to express to them that, that your person may absolutely not know what they even need. Cause I didn't Mm -hmm. like, it was hard for me to even think of my favorite meal, much less like what I needed, but like just being there and giving them that space, creating a little bit of awkwardness. And so then, and it, you know, it may not just be a sitcom where it happens in the very first time, but just continuing to show up. And that, that would, that would have been literally life-changing if, if I would have had somebody and, you know, my husband tried to be that person and he absolutely is amazing. Again, his spidey right. sense with what's right. going on, but it, it is just different with husband and wife versus like a friend. And it's just because your, your husband, I mean, they live with you and you're there and you're around them a lot. And so, you know, that they care about you, but it's different. Like when a, when a friend or a, you know, family member that doesn't live in the house with you, like is intentional and takes time. I think people's time is just worth so much. And so when they take time out of their schedule, to just sit with me and be awkward or whatever, that just means the world to me. And like you said, not just offering solutions because like, that's what I have a therapist for. That's what I have a psychiatrist for. Like that's what they do in the hospital. You know, I don't need another person giving me all of that, just their time and like conversation, you know, and not being like, scared to like ask me a question even it's some people's just nature to shy away from these um heavy subjects because they don't Mm -hmm. understand it and that's okay and it's like you said too where it's not a sitcom where we have 30 minutes and here's the here's the happy ending right so for you here you are four hospital stays in and still are experiencing these these episodes of depression and suicidal thoughts and so you can imagine like especially for your husband his thinking was probably like wow well if she couldn't figure it out with the doctors and all these stays like who am I to try and come in and offer anything if please don't take that the wrong way but it's just you know putting yourself in someone else's mindset what would you say I mean and I'll let you finish your story of that fifth visit as well but looking back at all of this is there anything specific that you can think of that finally helped you decide I deserve to heal I deserve to feel good I deserve to live a life that is full and that I feel is on purpose so so there is actually definitely um a big one so not to sidetrack from that question but I I'm gonna absolutely lead into that um, because that's where the fifth hospital stay takes me and so February 28th I realized I'm gonna commit suicide I 
my girls would be better off without me. My husband would be better off without me. Um, you know, all these things. So things that may have helped me in before with that, oh, we'll get better for them now are actually the opposite. Like if I wasn't here, they would be much better off. I'm always sick. They're going to grow up with me always being like this, like I did with my mom. And so you felt you were causing less pain by not being there. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. And so it was, it was utter hopelessness utter hopelessness there there wasn't anything left to cling to um, or anything like that so I had started writing a suicide note that evening and I had never had an attempt before so I had the pills in my hand in in my very previous hospital stay but never attempted and so I knew that I was really nervous about it and that's the crazy thing because I was I was very dead set on, you know, this is what I was going to do, but I was still just, I knew that there was something pulling me. I didn't know what it was, but I was just so nervous. So I had anxiety. So I took some of my anxiety medication and then was going to overdose. And so fortunately I fell asleep because I was so, I'd been crying all day and was so upset, took my anxiety medicine that I didn't think would actually put me to sleep just to ease my anxiety so that I could then go commit suicide. And I fell asleep. I wake up the next morning. I'm freaking out because I'm not dead. I didn't go through with it. I wasted my anxiety medicine because I actually couldn't hold my anxiety medicine at the time because that was the pills I was going to take last time. And so my husband had to hang on and only give me like one or two at a time so that if I had an anxiety attack, I would have, you know, enough to take care of that attack. And I was like, I wasted them. And so then I wake up and I start shoving pills in my mouth and my husband doesn't really know what's going on. He sees that I'm not getting ready for work. He's like getting the girls ready for school. And then he notices I'm in the bathroom cabinet. He, I mean, he sees the empty pill bottles. He's, he, he starts putting two to two, two and two together really fast. And so he gets the girls to school. He um, calls an ambulance. Uh, I had already taken a lot of medication at that point. I was trying to take more. He grabs my hand and, you know, makes me drop them. And then I start going in and out of consciousness at this point because of all the medication that I had just taken. And, um, I don't remember a whole lot. I remember the ambulance kind of getting there and I was in and out and I don't remember the first day of the hospital until kind of that evening, they were trying to feed me food. I wasn't even able to like be conscious enough to like hold the fork or anything. And day two, I um, realized there was a nurse stationed in my room and um, asked her why. And she said that I was in the critical care unit and that that's protocol when somebody tries to kill themselves is to have a 24 hour nurse. And so, and then by day three, I was a little bit better. I was definitely all the way conscious. They thought that they could safely release me, not to my home, of course. Um, And so that's when I was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital because, you know, I 
had attempted, I had tried to commit suicide. And so it was no longer a choice that I had. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately I was handcuffed and put in the back of a sheriff's car because again, that was protocol. The sheriff said some not great things. Hmm. Um, I asked him, was this normal? Like, does he normally do this? Cause obviously I had never had this done to me. And he told me, but it was a waste of taxpayer dollars to be transporting people oh to the psychiatric hospital, you know, and, and people aren't going to understand. Wow. And, you know, obviously I was very, and, and that was kind of my thing. I was very sick at the time. And I, all I could think was, you know, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm a productive citizen. I didn't go out here and break the laws. You know, you're not arresting me and taking me to jail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just, I'm sick. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. sick. I, I need help. Right. Way to and kick so, me while I'm down here. And like you said, it's, so, I guess just some people wouldn't understand. They just don't understand that mental health is a sickness. It's not, it's out of your control. It's so out of your control that here you are popping pills while your kids are getting ready for school. Can you imagine the level of like, disassociation that you have to be at to be able to do that in that moment. So that's really terrible to hear. That's sad to hear, but I hope he, I hope he's learned more since then. (laughs) Right. And, and I know that, um, I actually recently went to a NAMI event, which is a national Alliance on mental illness. And they had, a. Uh, a lady there speaking about the training that they provide police officers, because sometimes, you know, a mental health crisis doesn't need just a police officer. Like they need someone trained. They don't need to just be handcuffed and taken to jail because, you know, they maybe need to be talked down and go to a hospital. Not that there are no consequences, but maybe jail is not the first consequence, you know, isn't the first place that they need to go. Um, now obviously, um, yeah, I had the pleasure of, uh, working with the Illinois state police, uh, years ago and, it was called crisis intervention training. And what they would do is they would hold a a day of just scenarios. And I was one of the actors. (laughs) Don't ask how I got involved with this, but I was one of the actors that would come in and like be the one that was mentally unstable and unhealthy and cause some kind of chaos. Right. And we would be at like county jails or we'd be at like a community college and, you know, just a situation day-to-day life where they might get a call about mental health. And it would, it would teach them just some different ways of dealing with that situation. So I love that that's something that our police officers are actually starting to implement these days. Mm-hmm. It's, so, Absolutely. It's, it's vital that they understand that mental health doesn't mean um, we need you to come in. And it's not even always about that person being a threat to society, it's a threat to themselves. So how Mm -hmm. do you deal with that situation where someone needs saving from themselves in that moment? Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I really am glad that there's more education about it, that they really are trying. It's obviously a slow process. That's, 
unfortunately, just how it works and, you know, big institutions, but, but they are actively trying. I know in my local area, they were saying that they try to have at least one of those police officers that's trained in that per shift. And so that there's always someone that can be called to a mental health crisis during any given shift. So, you know, it, it really is. So there, there's hope in that as well. And so uh, I, I go to the psych hospital. They, you know, have seen me <laughs> several times by that point. And they say, you know, you're just, you're just not going to get better if you just keep doing the same stuff. You're going to end up back in here. So we're going to do a couple of different things. And I really want you to go to a PHP, Partial Hospitalization Program. So it's outpatient but it's like eight to two thirty every day. So it's Monday through Friday, you know, practically working hours for anywhere from three to five weeks. I, I went for four weeks. And so it's an intensive outpatient program, um, but it's not inpatient. So I, I told them I would agree uh, to, to do that, even though, you know, as a first year teacher, I'm like, am I going to lose my job? Am I, you know, all these what if questions. But what I told myself was that it didn't matter at that point that I knew that I was so sick that I had, you know, tried all these different medications and we were still struggling to find that right one because a lot of them have sedating effects. And so I was having a lot of like oversleeping issues, like falling asleep um, because of how sedative they were. And so I was like, I'm literally going to try to kill myself again if I don't go and do what they've asked me to do. And, and so I did, I, I went to the outpatient program, like I said, for four weeks, it didn't matter about my job anymore, because if I'm dead, what does it matter, you know? And so it, it was definitely a perspective change in, in a good way. And I, and I know that maybe sounds kind of cruel, maybe to somebody that's not familiar with just how horrible and gut-wrenching depression can be, but that's, that's what I needed to tell myself that day was, it doesn't matter about my job, if I'm going to kill myself, you know, because that's the right. level. That's where I was. And so that's what I needed to tell myself if I was being honest. And yeah. I was, but it makes sense been, to me. And even yeah. though I've never been quite to that point, it's like, it makes sense. I mean, if, if I want to live, then this is what's necessary. <laughs> what's the point of, you know, having a job if I'm going to be dead. So I get that. Absolutely. And so, so, so I did. And meanwhile, I had also been a part of this other group. And I think especially people with a lot of depression, being a part of a community is just so key. I mean, I I know that up until this point, you know, I had still tried to commit suicide while also being in this community. But it's still extremely helpful. And so I was a part of this Al-Anon group prior to ever, or prior to this hospitalization. And so then when I came out of the hospital and I was able to reattend the meetings, you know, they were asking me and I had been pretty open with them because it's a very close, small, safe group. So that's another thing, finding a safe group that you feel 
comfortable with because just being in a crowd you can still feel incredibly lonely and isolated and so so as a smaller group I felt safe I had already talked to them about my mental health struggles I was a pretty regular attender so when I didn't attend a meeting they had actually mentioned that they kind of assumed that um, I wasn't doing well and that I may have been in the hospital so this one gentleman who he said he adopted me as his granddaughter, <laughs> quite older gentleman, but he, he's, he's so sweet. I mean, just like a grandpa. I mean, he couldn't have said it better. He had actually been friends with somebody whose uh, spiritual gift was healing. And what I haven't said up until this point is I was an atheist this, this whole time. And so even though I attended this group that we kind of talked about spiritual things, a higher power, you know, it doesn't have to be a a Christian God or any sort of religious God. And so he knew that I wasn't religious, but he cared about me and he was willing to be rejected or for me to say something like, you know, you know that I'm, you know, or whatever to receive possibly some backlash, but he loved me and he, you know, was willing to stick his neck out and maybe get rejected or I don't know. I I mean, what's the worst thing I can say is no, but he was like, would you be willing to just meet with him? I know that you're not religious, but would you be willing to? And I said, in my head, I was thinking, you know, I'm just, I just still feel so bad. I literally have nothing to lose. I'm going to try to commit suicide again. So again, it's what I needed to tell myself that day, because that's where I was. And I'm a pretty open-minded person anyway. So sure, I'll I'll meet with him. And so, so I did. And he was a Christian and he had actually healed my adopted granddad of some, some health issues, uh, or through, through the healing of God had, had helped him, led him through that. And so he was actually a thoracic surgeon by trade. And then he did a lot of like spiritual healing work and testimony on the side. And so he met with me and I think that's what I had been waiting for this whole time and didn't know it was what was Jesus was, was God. And just the way, I I don't think I had mentioned this, what I, what my degree is in is actually biology and chemistry. And so I taught high school Mm -hmm. science. And so I was very science minded and as a thoracic surgeon, he also has a big background in science. Mm -hmm. And so he really met me where I was at and uh, talked to me and really did this beautiful job of combining science and Christianity in this not like pushy, shovey, hey, let me try to convince you of this, but just like, hey, this is what I've found as somebody of science and somebody, you know, of the Christian faith as well this is what I've found. This is what my research that I've done. This is what I've seen. These are the miracles that I've watched, you know, and just, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just like, so wonderful. It was just amazing, awe-inspiring. And, you know, I'd like to tell you that I converted that day. I didn't. It was a week later, actually, that, that I did. 
Um, and it was, it was in Panera. I think he did the right thing. And that's what I, I think I live by after learning so much and going through my own spiritual awakening is you have to just provide the information you can demonstrate, you can just live by an example of how you are feeling whole and complete and how you Mm -hmm. are letting life be what it is, which is a miracle, right? So whether Mm -hmm. you believe in Jesus or, you know, whatever religion you are, if you're just spiritual, I feel like we get to this point in life. And, you know, when I work with other people as well, we get to this just moment where it's like, there has to be something more. And maybe that's what you experienced was you after all of this, this vicious cycle of just ups and downs and just all of this pain and suffering, you realize there has to be something more. And then you got to the point where you're like, if there isn't anything more then I don't even want to be here. I'm so over yes. this. Right. And we all have kind of that effort moment where we're like, mm-hmm. what is the point of all of this? And yeah. so you sometimes have to get to that rock bottom place before you can have that moment of awakening of, okay, this is what's more. And I yes. know there's people that might listen to this and they might not believe in that higher power, but just believing in something just if you want to call it a life force energy, you know, something Mm -hmm. sourced this life for us. So we have to, you know, take it for what it is. It is a miracle that we're here. This is a gift that we were given this life. So I'm going to now go on this journey of figuring out what that more is. I know that was just Mm -hmm. a constant theme in my life has been, there has to be something more, there has to be something more. And I finally got to the point where I, I reached my own personal, you know, rock bottom and just that guy came into your life at just the perfect point. Oh yes. You you're given things to the extent of which you can take them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the universe or God whoever provided that person in your life at the exact timing that you were ready for it. So that's that's beautiful. Exactly. I mean, he met me where I was. You're exactly right. And I don't, I don't know that I could have found God in any other way, just because of who I was and my background. Um, You know, I just don't know if I would have been willing and open. I was absolutely at that rock bottom. That's how I describe it every time, because that's what it was and sharp edges and no way of getting out. And so, you know, I could, I could only look up that, I mean, that's it. Cause I was at rock bottom. And so I found that purpose in my life. I found, you know, this journey that I was, I was enough that I am worth it, that I am a precious jewel, you know? And, and so, and if I matter to nobody else, I have someone that loves me so much and, you know, just, just all the things that made me feel unworthy and unnoticed, God was there to, to fill in that gap. And he, he was already always there, but of course I didn't recognize and didn't want to see that and didn't want to acknowledge that and and all the things. And I want to just make a note, God is all things. God is everything. And God is every person in our life as well. So for that 
that adopted grandfather to say, you know, I'm willing to be rejected as many times as I need until you're ready to hear this. I thought that was really um, profound. And just knowing that you, you will always, as, as alone as you feel in this world, you know, when we're in our darkest days, we feel so isolated, feel so alone. Just remembering though, that you aren't alone. And if I, if I can say anything, it's like someone taught me recently where if you don't feel confident, if you don't feel like you're good enough, borrow my belief in you, borrow my faith in you. And for that person to say that to someone that's even from God speaking through that person, every Mm -hmm. person is a vessel of God and of that Christ consciousness that we all share. So just letting yourself become that vessel, like we talked about earlier as well. How do we be there for someone that's going through this? Well, just let yourself be, don't try and do, don't try and think too much about what action or the right words that you need to do. Just let yourself sit with it and you will Mm -hmm. be guided. It's a supernatural presence in a way, you know, it's like you will be guided that intuition, that little inkling that's with inside of you. And that's, you know, sitting on your heart, that is a presence that's so much greater than you that knows Mm -hmm. you can offer so much value and offer so much support to someone else. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and, and that's what he did. And both of them and, and you know they they showed up and were just obedient because you know he even said that he felt called to to do that to help me and and other people and you know just showed up not ever knowing if somebody would agree with it or I don't know throw a drink in his face I don't we always like imagine these horrible things in our head <laughs> right. of how things are going to go wrong but you know just obedience and showing up but yeah, absolutely. I, I found my purpose and, and my drive and, you know, that started my relationship with Jesus and it just, it literally changed my life. You know, I've been in no psychiatric hospital since, um, you know, I've had no wow. major episodes. I'm not going <laughs> to say, you know, it's cupcakes and rainbows over here, no, um, right. but it just, just the 180 that I've taken since then has just been literally miraculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing short of a miracle. And and not to mention that my eternity is different. I mean, you know, but obviously while here on earth, now I'm being that vessel to other people and I'm alive to mm. to tell the tale and 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 to spread whatever mm. it is, you know, awareness about mental illness. Um, just my personal story, the love of Jesus. I mean, just any of it, all of it. Sure. And I mean, it was, it was just only through him. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think that there are two components to living life fully and living life as the way it should be intended, which is an an amazing experience where you can expand. And so the two most important elements, in my opinion, are remembering that you are a spiritual being having a human experience. Mm -hmm. And then that second one is just realizing that you are enough. You are worthy. I can tell you, you know, I do hypnotherapy and, you know, different coaching programs and every single issue for the most part can be narrowed down to that feeling of worthiness and not being enough. So you, here you are, it took you years and years, 
hospital stays and every week going to appointments and talking and talking and taking meds and switching meds. And yet none of those tools worked. Those resources didn't work for you until you finally decided I deserve it. I am worthy. I matter. Mm -hmm. I think it's just incredible. So for anyone that's listening, and I know I have just dedicated my life to this work because I just want everyone to understand that no matter what you're going through, there is a light at the end of this tunnel and Mm -hmm. you have a reason for being here. You don't have to have a massive, crazy, wild dream about what you want to accomplish during this lifetime, but you are here for a reason, whether that's to support one other person, whether that's just to expand your own soul, you know, in some way that's okay too we can be selfish. We can take this life incredibly selfishly because that's our life. At the end of the day, when we're on our deathbed, no one gets to live with that regret except for you. So Mm -hmm. living for yourself and by living for yourself first and letting yourself fill up your cup first, that's when you can take on more responsibility. That's when you can offer that service that you might feel called to do, but you cannot do it until you get to that root cause, that root issue of just believing and knowing and trusting that you are enough. Exactly. That, yeah. And that's, that's it. That's Beautiful. what changed my life. Feeling and, and, and knowing that. <sighs> Incredible. And how yeah. do you feel today? That was so how I, long ago? Um, so 2016. So that was six years uh, ago, six years. And so, so what is the power that you have found through this healing process? Man, just a ton of confidence and just self-worth that I never knew, definitely didn't feel before. And that, you know, that it, that I'm, that I'm worth being well and I'm worth taking care of. And, um, I say no a lot more often, you know, uh, to, to things that aren't going to be good for my mental health or so that I'm not so overwhelmed, um, with all the to do's. And so knowing that God still loves me regardless, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't have to be any certain way. There's really no wrong or right way to live life. I'm sorry, but you know, there's, it's truly, it's just an experience. So as long as you're putting the best intention out there, no matter what you've done or what you've been through, there's always a, a chance to just move forward Mm -hmm. and you can release the past. Is that hard for you to release? the past experiences are you still dealing with feelings of shame or different emotions like that sometimes they do come up uh sometimes I have a hard time forgiving myself Mm -hmm. for some of the things and um so that is something that I continually work on and some of the things that i you know was the person that I was in the past so yeah that's a continual process as well. That's a huge one is forgiving yourself for, mm-hmm. I think you said it earlier was, you know, what you didn't know. You didn't know what you didn't know. So we yes. have to forgive ourselves. We were at, you know, a place in our life where we didn't know what we know today. So just being forgiving and having that compassion towards yourself 
is so important. Oh, and absolutely. How are your relationships with like your children and your husband now after all this? So, um, so they're good. So my first daughter, it was, it was a little rocky for a little while because, um, you know, I didn't want to be that clingy first time mom. So I feel like I kind of let other people take care of her a lot. Um, like whenever they wanted to come over, I would be like, oh yeah, sure. Hold the baby, you know? And that was just kind of my constant thing. And I feel like I didn't attach with her as much. And so, but now now through this work and through this healing, it really looks a lot different. We've grown a lot closer and I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Cause that was one thing that I was really ashamed of. Like I, I felt like I wasn't a loving enough mom. And, and so that was something that I struggled with. And then when my second daughter came along, I was very loving. And I was like, I don't care what people think. Like, I'm, you know, just gonna, I'm gonna hold my baby as much as I want to. And when she cries, if I hold her, you know, because people are like, don't hold the baby when it cries, you spoil them, you know, right. and just all these <laughs> things. And just, just learning some discernment of, you know, okay, you know, that's pretty good advice. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna do my own thing. And so, um, yeah. But, but yeah, and, and with my husband, he is amazing and, um, we're, we're just really doing great. Mm -hmm. How important, well, first of all, how easy is it for you to communicate about mental health with them now? So it's, it's a lot easier. I wouldn't say it's, um, you know, talking about what we're going to have for dinner easy, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's definitely a lot easier and I can just be like, you know, something's just off, you know? And so then, and he knows that, that that's my open communication because sometimes again, even through all this time and all this healing, I still just don't have the vocabulary in the moment when I'm not mm -hmm. feeling great. Right. And so, you know, just, just opening up. And then also when I am well, what I have done is I've talked to some very close friends mm -hmm. uh, along with my husband. And mm -hmm. when I'm well, I say, Hey, you know, when I'm not feeling well, these are some things that I tend to do or say or not say. So if you see any of these things, please feel free to intrude maybe a little bit more than you would normally or try to ask or something like that. So that's another suggestion that I have is that when you're well, when you're doing well and you, you feel, you know, a little bit more stable and confident of reaching out to those people you're close and comfortable with and be like, Hey, these are some of the things that I do. Isolation is my number one pulling back, being reserved, answering in very short sentences and phrases. Cause as you can tell, usually I talk pretty at length. And so, you know, so, some of those things that I've noticed, I let them know. And then they're like, Hey, that's Stephanie. A, yeah. That's a huge, that's an awesome tip. I've never really heard anyone say it like that, where you're giving someone permission to intervene, right? Mm -hmm. Because when we're kind of in the middle of our, you know, moments of 
whatever, you know, sometimes we can get defensive, right? Where it's like, oh, absolutely. I know for me, it's like a big thing where I'm like, if someone tells me, are you sure you're okay? Because you don't seem okay. And I get very defensive. But when you're in a healthier state of mind, you can say just a heads up, these are the things to look out for. That's actually really brilliant. I've never really had anyone suggest that before. So it comes again to those boundaries where you're saying, I'm going to set the boundary and the expectation now so that when Mm -hmm. the time comes, we know how to deal with this. And I think that's so important is just learning to deal with our own instincts, our own nature and helping others because it's about communicating. If you can't communicate something, communicating with your children, communicating with your partner, just letting them know it is okay in these times to Mm -hmm. intervene. Yes, absolutely. And another thing I used to do was I, another part of my isolation was I wanted to hide it from my children. I wanted to shield them from it because my mom was very open about her sickness. And like, she literally needed me to take care of her and literally asked me to take care of her. And it just wasn't age appropriate. And so I let my pendulum swing too far. And I was like, I need to shield my children from this. They don't need to see me sick. This is shameful. This is horrible. I'm an adult. I should be able to take care of myself, you know, and so more of that self-condemnation type talk. And, you know, I had a therapist say, you know, (laughs) do you want your children to think that it's not okay to not feel good? And so, I mean, there are age appropriate things and Hey, you know, mommy's not feeling well. I need some time. I need a nap again, that communication piece. And I felt like I couldn't say that before. Like I just didn't have the words and you know, that it's okay for them to let you, to let them see you not being well, but then how you handle it of, you know, reaching out when you don't feel well, asking for help when you don't put, so that then Mm -hmm. they're educated, that then if they have to go through it, they'll know what they can do and feel safe in doing that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Any, and first of all, thank you so much for all this. First of all, sharing your story so openly. And I think we got so many amazing little tidbits and some really awesome information to kind of help with this healing process and how to really just let yourself be right. Just let yourself Mm -hmm. know that mental health doesn't define me. This is something that I have something Mm -hmm. that is a part of my life, but it's not a defining role for you any longer. Right. So Anything final that you can really think of, whether it be speaking to someone that is in the thick of things right now, or if it's someone that's trying to just get to that breakthrough moment that you had? I would say back to that open and honest, even if it starts with yourself, because I think I tried to fool myself a lot try to convince myself that I was okay. I was just having a rough time. Maybe it was a little PMS, like, you know, just all these justifications. If you can be honest with yourself at first, like I'm not okay. Okay. Step one. Now I'm not okay. What can I do? What is, what is something simple 
that I can do. And then being, and then taking that next step to be honest with other people, even if that's just your therapist, psychiatrist, um, your extremely close friend. And just, again, I think I withheld a lot of healing, not being healed as soon, not getting the right help that I needed because I wasn't open and honest. And so I, I think that would be one of the major things, starting with yourself and then moving outwardly to other people. And it doesn't have to be a public Facebook announcement. Like, right. you know, that's not, you know <laughs> right. just, just with trusted people that you know are going to help you, sure. that are available to help you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I think what came to mind for me was it's okay not to be okay. I think admitting mm-hmm. that. It's a very hard thing to do is to Mm -hmm. say, it's okay. I don't feel okay, but that's okay. So, you know, to the next extreme, I'm like, okay, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Let's be real. Like we can't Mm -hmm. function fully. We can't share ourselves fully with our loved ones and with this world. Even we can't contribute in the way that we are truly capable of if we are going to stay in that space of not being okay. So I think you provided some amazing information on how to just kind of take those baby steps. And it's not, it's not going to happen overnight. Again, it's not a sitcom in 30 minutes. We're not going to feel okay, but we are taking the steps, acknowledging that our mental health matters. We Mm -hmm. matter. And it's important to, to take the necessary steps to getting better. Absolutely. Yeah. So I hope you took something away from that conversation. I know I had so many takeaways. It was so powerful. Stephanie is so authentic and open and vulnerable in sharing her experience. I could not be more grateful because by her sharing, I'm able to open up my level of awareness. I may be able to help support someone else in the future because of this conversation. I cannot wait to hear any takeaways that you have from this episode. Please make sure to share that with me. I always love hearing from listeners. Find me either on Instagram and send me a direct message or email me. I always leave my contact information in the show notes. And also make sure to follow Stephanie and to stay in touch with her so that she can share and continue to share her own healing journey and her growth and Again, these episodes that I'm bringing are for your benefit, not just my own. So I appreciate your input. And I hope that you go out today living in your power, living in your truth and your creativity, and knowing that you are enough. You matter. You are a powerful creator and that you are so loved in this world.